Because man must not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God, take your Bible and open it to 2 Peter chapter 3. This is our seventh and last message in the letter of Second Peter. Of Peter. This is second letter, so 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 to 18. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black hardcover Bible in the chair in front of you or around you. And if you turn in that Bible to page 1080, going into page 1081, you'll find 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 to 18. Hear the word of God from 2 Peter 3, that's chapter 3, the big number, and then the small number is 14 to 18. Therefore, dear friends, while you wait for these things, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in his sight at peace. Also regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given to him. He speaks about these things in all his letters. There are some matters that are hard to understand. The untaught and unstable will twist them to their own destruction, as they also do the rest of the scriptures. Therefore, dear friends, since you know this in advance, be on your guard so that you are not led astray by the error of lawless people and fall away and fall from your own stable position, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. This is the word of the Lord. May the word of Christ dwell richly among us. Father, we have heard your voice. We've heard your voice from Psalm 96, we've heard, or Psalm 95, from Psalm 92, from John 5, from 1 Chronicles 29, and now as we have read 2 Peter 3, 14 to 18, you have not stopped speaking to us since we got here. So we pray that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to us. We pray that you would soften our hearts to your word. We pray that we would tremble at your word, that you would give us the gift of faith and repentance by your word and spirit. Open our eyes to your glory, we ask, and transform us from one degree of glory to the next. Help us to share in your nature, in your godliness, in your holiness, in your joy. We cannot do this apart from your help. We are desperate for your help. So help us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. How do we effectively wait for Christ's coming? Everyone is waiting for something. Everyone is looking forward to something. How do we effectively wait for Christ's coming? Last week, I talked about March 17th. You remember that? March 17th is what? St. Patrick's Day, right? St. Patrick's Day. And we do not, most of us, don't effectively wait for St. Patrick's Day. It comes and it goes, and we are indifferent to it. Just like we sang in All I Have is Christ, we were indifferent to the cross. We are indifferent to St. Patrick's Day, and I was saying last week, often a lot of us are functionally indifferent to the second coming of Christ. It's just a side note on the side of our lives. We don't effectively wait for it the way way we would wait for a newborn baby to arrive um, after months of pregnancy or the way we'd wait for a wedding day. Um, And so the call here or the question I have 
for you is how do you effectively, functionally wait for Christ's coming, His return? Many don't wait well, but are distracted by worldliness, the things of this world, our own ambitions, Satan, things of the flesh. And so because we're distracted, we are therefore in danger of falling away from Christ. We're in danger of apostatizing. Or to use the words of this passage, we are in danger of falling from our stable position. And you have to strike a balance when you read texts like this. There are two errors you can make as a Christian or as a professing Christian. One, you can be dominated by fear to the point where you read the Bible and you can't even trust the words of the Bible. That's, that's becoming fearful in a satanic per- way. And on the other side, you can be presumptuous as a Christian and never, ever raise the question of the fact that you might not be a Christian. You don't even examine whether you're a Christian or not. You don't even test it. You just assume and presume that you're a Christian. So one is having no fear at all, no healthy fear, and the other side is being dominated by a satanic fear where you can't even trust the words of God in the Bible for your own life. And so because of those two extremes, we need to understand how our indifference to the second coming or how we ineffectively wait for the second coming might cause us to fall away. Now, if it's possible that you can fall away, if it's possible that you can fall from your stable position, if it's possible that you might not really be a Christian, even though you might have thought you're a Christian, as I've thought I've been a Christian since 1989, if it's possible that I can be mistaken and that you can be mistaken, that can strike worry and fear and anxiety in us. For me, it does. Sometimes I can worry, am I really a Christian? I can wrestle with the evil and the ugliness and the darkness in my heart at times and think, man, am I really a Christian? And I can become overwhelmed by worry or fear, anxiety. Will I endure to the end or will I eventually flame out? For me personally, I could look at other pastors that um, I've looked up to or that I've seen as faithful guides and models of mature Christianity and then to see them either apostatize or just disqualify themselves from Christian ministry, it strikes serious fear and worry in my heart. And that's not all unhealthy, but it can be. So again, the question, how can we faithfully wait for the Lord? Or another way to say it, how can we faithfully not fall from our position, from our stable position? I think that's the main goal of this text. And I'm getting this from verse 17. So look at verse 17. I think this is the purpose statement of the, of the passage. Um, since, you are, since you know this in advance, be on your guard so that, there's the purpose, so that you are not led away by the error of lawless people, and so that, and here's the main goal, so that you do not fall from your own stable position. So here's, that's the main goal of this, that's the main purpose of this passage. So the main goal of this sermon is maintain your stable position so that, and here's the bigger goal of all of Second Peter, so that you, you confirm your calling and election. Okay, maintain your stable position so that you confirm your calling and election, so that you confirm that you're really a Christian. Not so that you earn your calling and election, not so that you earn your Christian salvation, but that you confirm the salvation that God has given to you. Maintain your stable position. And the reason why we're to maintain our stable position, we're not gonna spend too much time on this now, so I'll say this at the beginning, it's in verse 14. The reason why we need to maintain our stable position all the way to the end is because Look at verse 14, and I think the CSB, I don't prefer the CSB translation to the ESV and King James and NIV, 
on this part. Verse 14. Therefore, dear friends, while you wait for these things, make every effort to grow in holiness and to maintain your stable position. It says, while you wait for these things. Now, the ESV and other translations say, because you wait for these things, maintain your stable position. It's a reason why you're to maintain your stable position. So if I ask you, why should you maintain your stable position all the way to the end of your Christian life? Because you are waiting for these things. You're waiting for the day of God. You're waiting for the final judgment. You're waiting for God to melt this whole earth, in a sense, and renew and transform this into a new earth to give you a glorified body to live with Christ, reigning on a new earth to come. That's what you're waiting for. And because you're waiting for that, you need to maintain your stable position. Now, how do you maintain your stable position? In this passage, Peter gives us four ways to effectively maintain our stable position. Four ways to effectively wait for the second coming. Or you could say four ways to confirm your calling in Christ, okay? So four ways to maintain your stable position. Are you ready for the four? I'll tell you all four, and then we'll go through them one at a time. You maintain your stable position by going, by going hard after holiness. There are four Gs. By going hard after holiness, by giving thanks for God's patience. That's the second one, by giving thanks for God's patience. Thirdly, by um, guarding yourselves, by guarding yourselves. And fourthly, by growing in grace, okay? You maintain your stable position by going hard after holiness, by giving thanks for God's patience, by guarding yourselves, and by growing in grace. Let's look at those one at a time, starting with maintain your stable position by, verse 14, by going hard after holiness. Look at verse 14 with me. While you wait for these things, brothers, dear brothers, beloved ones, loved by Peter, loved by Christ, loved by other Christians, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in his sight at peace. There's the command. Make every effort. That's why I'm saying go hard. Go hard after being found without spot or blemish in God's sight at peace. Make every effort. This is a big theme in Peter. Peter says this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, and chapter 1, verse 10. Go, go hard, make every effort. Don't relax. Don't go 75% effort. Go 100% effort all the time to be found without blemish or spot in his sight. To, to make every effort can be translated to take pains, to be zealous, to be passionate, to be eager, to be conscientious, to be thoughtful and intentional in going hard after holiness, to be found without spot or blemish. Without spot or blemish. What does that mean, to be without spot or blemish? Well, Peter is contrasting that with the false teachers in chapter 2. Look at chapter 2. Um, I think it's in chapter 2, verse 13. Um, let me see, 2.13. It says that they, the false teachers, are spots and blemishes. You see that in verse 13? False teachers are spots and blemishes. So if you're a true Christian, you're not a false Christian, you're not a false teacher, work hard, go hard after holiness so that you are found without spot or blemish. Now, when you think about being found without spot or blemish, what other things in the Old Testament are to be found without spot or blemish? You have that phrase over and over. What is it? The what? Sacrifices. You take sacrifices that are without spot or blemish. So the Passover lamb, when you take the Passover and you kill that Passover lamb and put the blood over your doorpost so that the angel of death passes over you in the story of the Exodus, it was a, a lamb or goat that is one year old without spot or blemish. Without blemish, without spot. 
So you are to be found without spot or blemish. In other words, you are like a sacrifice. That sounds like what Paul says when he says, therefore I urge you brothers and sisters by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And what's the next word? Holy and pleasing to him. This is your spiritual worship. And do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that in the renewing of your mind, you may approve what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. You want to know God's will for your life? Then don't conform to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's, what, that's Peter's point here. Make every effort. Go hard in presenting your bodies as a sacrifice without spot or blemish. Now, the point here is not to be perfect. It's not perfection, but to pursue, so don't pursue perfection. Well, I mean, in one sense, it's not about attaining perfection. It's about pursuing perfection, okay? We will never attain perfection in this life. You will sin every day of your life. If you don't understand that, you might not understand the doctrine of sin or the doctrine of humanity. Christians sin all the time, every day. Maybe not every single moment, but they sin regularly. And you will until you die. But you can grow and you can make every effort to be without spot or blemish. So it's not about attaining perfection, but pursuing perfection. Like Paul said, I press toward the what? Toward the goal, or in the King James Version, I press toward the mark. I press toward the goal of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. I'll make every effort, forgetting what is behind, looking forward to what lies ahead. I press, I push, I make every effort to press toward the goal. And that's what, Paul, that's what Peter is calling you to do. Are you making every effort or are you making some effort? Peter does not say make some effort to be found without spot or blemish. He doesn't say make effort once a week on Sundays to be found without spot or blemish. Or even worse, he doesn't say make, make effort at least on Sundays from 10 o'clock to 12 o'clock. That's not what he says. He doesn't say make some effort. He doesn't say make 75% effort. He says, make what? Every effort. Push hard. This is a call against laziness. This is a call against negligence. This is a call against half-heartedness. This is a call against you relaxing when you ought to be pushing and pressing. The point is to make every effort by going hard for holiness. Now, this is Peter's way. When he says, without spot or blemish... That's a negative way of saying avoid spots and blemishes. The positive way to say it is 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7. So let's just go back to the other make every effort texts. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. It says, make every effort to supplement. This is what it means to be without spot or blemish. How do you be a living sacrifice? Here's what you do. PJ, get practical. How do I make every effort to be without spot or blemish? What should I do? Well, do what he says in 2 Peter 1, 5. Make every effort to supplement your faith with what? With goodness. And supplement your goodness with what? Say it loud, goodness with knowledge and supplement your knowledge with self-control and supplement your self-control with endurance and, su and supplement your endurance with godliness and supplement your godliness with brotherly affection and submit, um, um, supplement your brotherly affection with love. So are you making ever, every effort to supplement your faith with goodness and your goodness with knowledge and with your knowledge with self-control and your self-control with endurance and your endurance with godliness and your godliness with brotherly affection for other Christians 
and your brotherly affection for other Christians with your love for God and all people, Christian or non-Christian, your neighbors and the nations? Are you making every effort to supplement your faith with these things? That's what Peter's telling you to do in 2 Peter 3.15. If you do that, you'll be found without spot or blemish. There's another way Peter says it in verse 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, make every effort to what? To confirm your calling and your election. So you could say it any of those three ways, and those are overlapping realities. Make every effort to be found without spot or blemish. Make every effort to supplement your faith with other Christian virtues. Make every effort to confirm your calling and your election. Now go back to verse 15, or chapter 3, verse 14. It says, to be found at peace in his sight. So you're to be holy. You're to be without spot or blemish. You're to pursue Christian virtues. In whose sight? In his sight. And who's his here? Whose sight? God's sight. In Christ's sight, right? In God's sight. The point is not, brothers and sisters, especially in a church like this, that sharing life, you need to hear this. It's not about being holy in the sight of your church family. It's not about being holy in the sight of the world and your neighbors. It's not about being found holy in the sight of your biological family. It's about being holy in whose sight? In God's sight. When you are holy in God's sight, then you are free from the opinions of men and women. And some of your church will affirm you, and some of your church won't. But Peter is calling you to pursue holiness in God's sight. When you pursue holiness in the sight of your church family or your biological family or friends or your coworkers or the world, then you will, by, you will um, by default, you will have to be a hypocrite. You will have to be a faker because you care too much about what they think. But if you're holy in God's sight, and what does God see, by the way? What is in God's sight? Everything, right? You can't pretend to be holy in God's sight. You can be deluded, but you can't pretend if you understand that God knows everything. And if you're holy in God's sight and you're pursuing that, then you're free from the opinions of others. So brothers, sisters, pursue holiness in God's sight, not the sight of friends, not the sight of church, but in God's sight. And then notice one last thing here before we move on. He says, be found, be found without spot or blemish, be found at peace. Now when it says be found here, that's the same verb as verse 10. So if you go back to verse 10, it says that the world, that all the works on the earth will be found. But it doesn't say be found in the CSB, it says be disclosed. What's that saying? In the end, when, God, when Christ returns, all of the works on earth will be disclosed, it'll be exposed for what? For the final what? Judgment. So there's an overtone of judgment here. Peter is saying, brothers, sisters, because you're waiting for Christ's return, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish at peace with God at the judgment. So you're pressing all the way to the end of your Christian life. Not to the end of this month, but to the end of your lives. You're working towards that final judgment. You're not earning your salvation, but you are, you're, you're working and pursuing holiness so that at the final judgment, when all of your works are exposed, you will be found without spot or blemish. Not sinless, but you'll be found to be a true Christian. You'll be found that you're pursuing holiness. You'll be found at peace with God because all true Christians are at peace with God and all those who are not true Christians are not at peace with God. They're at enmity with God. So pursue holiness, brothers and sisters, like righteous Lot. We learn about righteous Lot in 2 Peter chapter two. He was distressed with the ungodliness and the sin in Sodom and Gomorrah. 
So pursue holiness like righteous Lot, distressed over the sins of his neighbors rather than conforming to their cultural ways. Or another way, there was also Noah as an example in, in 2 Peter chapter 2. Pursue holiness like Noah, who continued to wait. Noah had to wait for what? For the ark to be built and wait for a flood to come. Did he effectively wait or did he wait with indifference? He effectively waited. He was building. He was making every effort to build and trust God as he was waiting for the flood, as he was waiting for the day of judgment. And so it is with you. Wait effectively like Noah. Build, pursue holiness, proclaim righteousness the way Noah proclaimed righteousness with his life and with his words. Proclaim God's deliverance to anyone who would hear. Make every effort to fight personal sin. Make every effort to increase in your holiness and make every effort to work towards the church's holiness. As a church family, let's be a church community where we celebrate holiness as unto the Lord, but not as unto people. Here's a tricky thing in a healthy church. And I think our church is doing okay, but we can grow in it. We want to celebrate each other's growth. We want to celebrate each other's holiness, but in such a way that we're not overly impressed by each other's holiness. Because if I start to get impressed by your holiness, what are you going to be tempted to do? To want more, right? Well, how can I impress PJ more? How can I impress other church members more? And once that sinks into your, your mind and your thoughts, then you're just not even seeking holiness in God's sight anymore, right? So one of the, the opposite thing, the, the, the other error to do is to say, well, then let's not share when we're, we're impressed by each other. Let's not share, let's not encourage each other when we see growth in each other's life. Let's be a discouraging church. Or let's be a non-affirming church. That is not a healthy church either, right? So here's what we need to do, BBC family. We need to affirm each other when we see evidences of grace. At the same time, we need to see God's grace in that and not be overly impressed by each other. Because sin is always crouching at the door, seeking to overtake us, right? And at the same time, God's grace is active in our lives. So let's point out grace in each other And at the same time, let's not be overly impressed by each other, but let's continually be impressed by Christ's grace to sinners like us. If you're not a Christian, the call for you here is not, if you're not a Christian, thank you for being here, but don't misunderstand Christianity here. The call is not to to, to be as good as possible so that you earn God's salvation. You could never be good enough for God. The message of Christianity is not be a good person so that, God, so that your good outweighs your bad and God will accept you. I heard a, a friend, a neighbor say that to me this very week as we were gospelizing him, that he thought that was the message of Christianity, that your good would outweigh your bad. That is not the message of Christianity. That is Satan's version of Christianity. That's a distorted, demonic version of Christianity. And that is not true. The Bible's message is not be as good as you can to make it to heaven. Children, Be holy in God's sight. Now, children, you can be scared of your parents because they can spank you and discipline you. And that is scary. But as children, you need to work now. If you can understand my words now, you can understand this. Even as you are right right to have have a fear for your parents, you need to pursue holiness in God's sight more than your parents. You need to be more fearful of God than your parents or else you will idolize your parents and your family. So love your parents, honor your parents, but don't, put them above God. You need to be holy in God's sight, not your dad's sight and not your mom's sight, ultimately. You know what that means? And you know this, kids, right? Because sometimes your parents aren't around, so you can get away with things. But guess who always sees? Guess who's always around? God is. And God's not doing that to scare you. He's doing that to free you. You don't have to be a hypocrite and fake your way sometimes and other times. He's actually encouraging you to be a person of integrity. If you're feeling weak spiritually, 
God will give you strength to be holy, so pursue him. If you're feeling stumbling, like you're stumbling in your Christian life or you're stubbornly stuck in your sin, God will forgive you and transform you. Don't be discouraged that he's calling you to pursue holiness. Go after him. That has always been God's desire to, to transform you. And if you're feeling encouraged and strong in your spiritual life right now, don't let your current state of encouragement or strength be a license to laziness. Some of you are doing well right now. You're in a season of spiritual health. That is not a license to laziness. Peter is saying, make every effort to be found without spot or blemish in his sight and at peace. The good news is that God wants us to be holy because God loves seeing us happy in him. And he wants our joy and our best in him. So maintain your stable position, number one, by going hard after holiness. Number two, by giving thanks for God's patience. By giving thanks for God's patience. That's in verse 15 and um, the first part of 16. It says in verse 15, also regard, and this is, uh, think about, regard the patience of our Lord as what? Salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul has written to you according to the wisdom given him. So here, I'm saying give thanks for God's patience. Now the text doesn't say give thanks for God's patience. It says regard God's patience as what? Salvation. Now I'll tell you why I'm saying give thanks in a second, but let's understand this first. Is God's patience, does God's patience mean salvation for some? Yes or no? Yes, it does. Why? If you remember earlier in this chapter, a day for the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day to the Lord. God does not delay, but he's patient with you wanting everyone to come to what? repentance. That's 2 Peter 3.8. So does God's patience mean salvation for some? Yes, because if God comes now, then everyone who's not saved now will be damned to hell forever. Righteously. Damned and judged to hell for their sins. But if God doesn't come yet, if he's patient, what does that mean? That you can hear the gospel this morning and become a Christian. It means that you as a Christian can still share the gospel with your neighbor and they can become Christians. There's still salvation to be had for some. And for fellow Christians, there's more salvation to experience here on this earth before Christ comes. And so God's patience means salvation for more. So Peter's saying, as you wait, don't just wait and be like, man, God's taking too long. When's he gonna come? Like, I need my resurrection body. If you're under 40 years old, you don't understand what I'm saying yet, most of you. But if you're 40 like me or more, you, you, could, you could, and I know the 50s and 60s and 70 years old are saying, PJ, you don't have no idea. You're 40 years old. You have no idea what you're talking about. I know I don't have the idea like you do, but I have it more than the 20-year-olds, okay? And as I get older, I'll, I'll learn more. But as we're saying, Lord, come now. I want my resurrection body now. That would be nice. But it's also nice that he's patient and not coming now. Even if it means some of us have to die before Christ comes. That's still a blessing as well. Because that means the gospel gets to spread to more people. So let's regard the Lord's patience as salvation. And therefore, let's give thanks. Thank you, Lord, that you didn't come in 1988 because I got saved in 1989. I praise you, God, for your, your patience. I thank you for your, your patience. And I thank you that you're still patient in February 23, 2020 because there are some here who are not Christian who get to hear the gospel. And faith might come by hearing right now, right here. And someone else might get saved this morning. Because God is patient with you. So let's give thanks that we have opportunities. Does anyone here have any non-Christian friends, neighbors, or loved ones that they still want to see come to Christ? Raise your hand if you know anyone. Okay, if you raise your hand, 
let's thank God that he's not coming yet, that he's not here yet, that you have at least after the service, until Christ comes, you might have an opportunity today to call somebody, to text somebody, to arrange a dinner with someone so that you can share the gospel with them that they might get saved. Give thanks to God that his patience means salvation for more people. That's the point here. If you're not a Christian, what does this mean for you? Well, it means that you can be saved today. How can you be saved from your sins? This is the message of Christianity. It's not be a good person like I said earlier. This is the message of Christianity. God made you. He made you to know him and enjoy him. You're made in his image if you're human. But we have rebelled against God. We have rejected God. God is our creator, but we've rejected God. And we said, God, I don't want you, or maybe I want you, but I only want you because I want to use you for other things that I really want, like health or family or money or success or power. And because you want God in that way, you rebel against God. You dishonor God. You attack God's value and character. And so God is not only your creator, he's also your judge. And God says the judgment for sin is death, eternal death in hell, the lake of fire forever and ever and ever. That's the bad news. And all, Christ, all humans, Christians and non-Christians, all of us deserve damnation for our sins. But here's the good news, that God is not only creator and judge, but God is Christ. Jesus Christ, son of God, comes into the world, God, very God, also becomes a, he becomes a man. And as God, as the God man, he lives the life we should have lived. He dies on the cross for sinners like you and me. And he rises from the dead. So he pays our penalty, pays the price. He rises from the dead showing that he has defeated Satan, sin, and death. So that everyone, including you, if you're not a Christian here this morning, if you would repent from your sins, turn from your sins, and turn from your righteousness and goodness, and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, you would be saved today. So I invite you to call on Jesus to save you this morning. If you're a child, children, call on Jesus to save you this morning. He's the only savior. He died for your sins. He rose from the dead. He came to give you the offer now. And if you would repent and trust in him, he will save you. So call on Jesus to save you from your sins. God is kind to sinners. God is patient. Romans 2, 4 says, it's the kindness and patience of God that leads us to repentance. God is not waiting to zap you now, does God hate sin, yes or no? Does, is God angry with us in our sin, yes or no? Yes, but God is also patient. He's also kind. He's enthusiastic and eager to forgive you. So here's how people notice here. It says, just as our brother Paul has written, according to you, or according to the wisdom given to him. So maybe, maybe Peter's thinking of Romans 2, 4, that it's the kindness and patience of God that leads you to repentance. So, so God's patience is salvation. Or maybe it's um, Paul's writing in Romans 11, verses 25 to 32, where he says that the Gentiles are now being shown God's mercy so that the Jews would be shown God's mercy so that God could, through this mercy, gather all of his people, but that's gonna take some time. So maybe that's what Peter's talking about here, but the point here is that God is patient and that means salvation for you. So while you wait, don't be impatient or complaining. Yes, pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. But at the same time, know that God is good and wise with his timing. God is not late, he's not impatient, and he's not indifferent, he's coming. Be hopeful in your waiting. Jesus is coming soon to finally save. Christ will come soon. There is an end to your suffering, to your sickness, to your death, to your crying, to your pain, to your brokenness. There is an end. So be hopeful and also be intentional. Until Christ comes, 
engage your neighbors with the gospel. Learn the gospel for yourself. If you're a Christian, you should know how to explain the gospel. If someone says to you, what is the gospel? You should have a good answer on what is the gospel. And you should be growing in your answer to that question. Church family, let us sing and enjoy songs about heaven. Let's look forward to the return of Christ. Let's sing songs about the return of Christ. Let's long for the return of Christ and for our true home, the new earth. If you're discouraged in your Christian life or you're stumbling around in sin, I have good news for you. God is patient with you. God is patient with you. So come back to him. Turn from your sin and let him transform you. Don't use God's patience to keep indulging in your cycles of sin. It is not an excuse to sin. It's a, it's a reason to get out. It's, a get, it's, a get out. it's an exit route from your freeway in sinning. Some of you come every Sunday and say, pray for me. And you have the same prayer request to get out of your same sin that you've been praying for months or years. You can stop praying that. I mean, God can answer that prayer. God does put exit routes for you to just get off that freeway of sin to him. God is patient with you. Let God soften your heart. And for our society, Los Angeles, Bellflower, Southeast LA County, the world needs to know that judgment is coming. And they will have to answer for their sins. You will have to answer for your sins. So let's praise God that he's patient, long-suffering, and kind. That's the second way to maintain your stable position. So maintain your stable position so that you confirm your calling and election, and you do it by, number one, going hard after holiness. Number two, giving thanks for God's patience. Number three, by guarding yourselves. By guarding yourselves. Look at verse uh, 16. It says here, well, let me go to verse 17 first to show you the command. The command is in verse 17. It says, be on your guard. You guys see that? Be on your guard in verse 17. That's the command. Be on your guard, and it's not be on your guard individually, but as a church family. Church family, be on your guard. Christians as a group and as individuals, collectively and individually, be on your guard. Guard yourselves. Guard yourselves. Now, why should we guard ourselves? Look at verse 16. So Paul has written according to the wisdom given to him. Here's why you should guard yourself. There's um, two reasons why you should guard yourself. Guard yourselves. First of all, look at verse 16. Paul has written according to the wisdom given to him. He speaks about these things, this patience and salvation in all his letters. Now, here's why you need to guard yourself. There are some matters that are hard to understand. So some of Paul's writings are hard to understand. The, un- the untaught and unstable, what do they do with, with Paul's writings? They what? They will what? They'll twist them to their own destruction as they also do the rest of, your script- of the scriptures. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know that they're going to twist the scriptures... Since Paul's writings are hard to understand, and some people do twist those writings, be on your guard. Guard yourselves. So the first reason why to guard yourself is because people will twist the scriptures. People people will twist Paul's writings, and people will twist the scriptures. Now, some things are hard to understand. The Bible is clear, but that clarity doesn't mean that all things are easy to understand. I love what Alistair Begg, um, one of my favorite preachers, what he says. The main things are the plain things. And the plain things are the main things. That's helpful. The main things are the plain things. The plain things are the main things. And when you, when you make the main thing the secondary things or the small things, you get in all kinds of spiritual trouble and all kinds of twisting of scripture, all kinds of eccentricities. The main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. Wayne Grudem defines the clarity of scripture this way. The clarity of scripture means that the Bible is written in such a way that its teachings are able to be understood by all who will read it seeking God's help, and being willing to follow it. I love that. Anyone who reads the Bible and they are seeking God's help 
and they're willing to obey whatever they read, they will be given understanding of scripture. The Bible is able to be understood by all of those who are prayerfully asking God for help and willing to obey whatever it says. Now, that doesn't mean we, we true Christians who pray for help and are willing to obey, that doesn't mean we obey it, we understand everything, right? Can Christians misunderstand scripture? Yes, and Christians can misinterpret scripture. I'm sure in all my preaching here in the last five years, there are some errors somewhere in my preaching. I don't know where they are, but there could be. And, and, and we need to keep growing in our understanding of scripture. But this is why we have hermeneutics where we study how to understand the Bible, how to interpret scripture in this world and ourselves. And then there's exegesis where you try to draw out from the text the meaning of the text. We have biblical theology because you need to know how to understand this text in light of the whole Bible and the storyline of the Bible pointing to Christ. We have systematic theology because the Bible does not contradict itself. So therefore, when you study any text, it must not contradict any other text in the Bible. If God is the author and God is coherent, then the Bible will be coherent. And then we have historical theology because we don't live in the year 53 AD or 65 AD, whenever 2 Peter is written. We live in 2020 AD. And because we live in 2020 AD, we, um, because we live in 2020 AD, we have historical theology. There are other people from church history who have interpreted the scriptures. Does God only speak to you? Yes or no? No, he speaks to your church family. Does God only speak to this church family or other church families? Other church families. Does God only speak in our generation or has he spoken in past generations? He's spoken in past. He's illumined people from the past. So if you only look at your enlightenment in your life or your church or your denomination or your generation, then you will misinterpret some scripture because light has not only broken into your generation and your time and your place. And when you get that subjective to just yourself or just your church or just your denomination, then you will twist scripture. You'll misinterpret some. So God has given us all of these gifts so that we could understand the Bible. He's given you a church family so that you could study with the Bible. So we must be diligent to um, study the Bible. Or 2 Timothy 2.7 says, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So let us recognize the Bible's authority here and let us study the Bible faithfully. Now notice here it says, they twist the scripture to their own what? To their own destruction. So, I mean, um, well, I'm sorry, before we get to their own destruction, it says the rest of the scripture, as they do with the rest of the scriptures. If he says the rest of the scriptures, what is he saying about Paul's writings? Are Paul's writings scriptures or are they subordinate to the scriptures? He seems to make them parallel here, right? They're twisting Paul's writings just like they do the, the rest of the scriptures. In other words, Paul's writings to Peter is on the same level as the Old Testament scriptures. That's important because in 2 Peter 1.21, Peter says that people were moved by the Holy Spirit and they spoke the prophets of old. But Peter's saying in 2 Peter 3 that Paul's writings are at the same level as the prophets. In other words, this is an argument that the New Testament has the same authority as the Old Testament. And that even within the New Testament, we have the teaching that the whole canon of Scripture, Old and New Testament, pointing to Jesus, revealing and explaining and applying Jesus, is all under the divine inspiration of God, under the Holy Spirit, and has God's authority. Now, that means for us, if you're not a Christian or if you are new to this church, what this means is that as a church, Bethany Baptist Church, we believe that the Bible is the final authority for all matters. We believe the Bible is infallible, it cannot fail you in what it says, and it is without error in the original manuscripts. So you can trust God's word fully, completely. Now we believe that, that the Bible has no errors. 
in its original manuscript, not in translations, but in its original. Now, if you're not a Christian, you might say, okay, hold on, time out, PJ. This is why I would never be a Christian, because you believe in a Bible that I think is unreliable. It's unreasonable to believe in the whole Bible. I think you actually have to put your head in the sand and ignore all the contradictions and all the problems in the Bible, because if you thought about it, PJ, if you thought about it, Bethany Baptist Church, you would see that there are clearly things in the Bible that you can't trust. I mean, think about modern science and modern history and modern uh, or history up till this date and culture, modern culture. We can't be sure that the counts, maybe, maybe it's legends, maybe it's not, maybe they're myths. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Did he really walk on water? Was he really born of a virgin? You guys really believe that? And then furthermore, you Christians, you really believe in the social teaching, for example, about women, that they need to submit to their, that the wives, not all women to all men, but the wives need to submit to their husbands. You believe that? That's socially regressive. That leads to abuse. How can we trust the Bible if it's scientifically out of date, if it's historically out of date, and if it's socially out of date? Well, that's a good question. And if that's what you're thinking, let me just give you a brief response to um, the Bible being unreasonable and unreliable. First of all, if you think the Bible is legends and it's out of date with history and, um, and, and science, like people rising from the dead, that seems unscientific, just know that you, um, it, it can't be a legend or a myth because the Bible was written, it's, it's the, the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when it talks about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, it was written too close to the events. To become a myth or a legend, it takes hundreds of years to build up any plausibility that these myths actually happened. But to do it in the same generation is, is implausible. It's just unreasonable that you would write that and people would be convinced. So if you say Jesus fed 5,000 people, 15,000 people with, with five loaves and two fish, people are still alive. If you said Jesus rose from the dead 20 years ago, People who are there in Jerusalem are still around. So it's, it's too close to the events to really gain the, the steam and momentum to be a myth in that regard. It's too early to be legends. It was written 30 to 60 years after Christ's death. Even the earliest writing was 20 years after Christ's death. And then not only that, the, the, the content is far too, it's, it's what, what the Bible teaches is, it's, um, what, the, what it writes, what, what's in there is counterproductive if you're trying to spread Christianity as a lie. So, who were the first, the, the first people, if you're not a Christian, you need to understand this. The first people to see Jesus rise from the dead are not men, but women. And women were not allowed to testify in the court of law in the Roman Empire at that time. And so for Jesus to reveal himself to women first, and they're the first witnesses of Jesus, is, is crazy. You don't make that up. The only reason you'd write that down is if it really happened, okay? So they're not making up stories that would not fly in the first century. So... Um, so that would be counterproductive. And then if you're saying, you know, the Bible is socially regressive because it, it's offensive to me. It's offensive to our culture today. I mean, nobody thinks that marriage should be between one man and woman today. That's just socially regressive. If that's what you think, you have the right to that opinion, but just know that you think what your grandparents thought was crazy, right? Because they thought that marriage was between one man and one, one woman. Your, your grandparents or your great-grandparents. Well, guess what? Guess what your great-grandkids are gonna think about your thoughts today? and your great-great-grandkids. I mean, do you really think that your grandkids and your great-grandkids and your great-great-grandkids are gonna agree with everything you think today in this generation? I mean, that's narrow-minded, isn't it? To say that our generation is the best and that finally we got it right on marriage? So for you to say, you know, the Bible's just so close-minded and out of date, well, guess what? Two generations from now, your thoughts are gonna be out of date. 
And so I would encourage you to, to trust in the Bible or at least consider trusting in the Bible. Now let's go back to this, to, to this passage. So in verse 16, they, they twist these scriptures to their own destruction. That means that these people who twist the scriptures, they do it and they'll be under God's wrath forever. Now notice, who are the people that twist the scriptures? What are they called here? They're called two things. Untaught and what? Unstable. Why are they untaught? Because their view of scripture is whose view? Their own. They're not taught by anyone. They're not taught by their churches. They're not taught by pastors and others who are leading. They're, they're, they're self-taught. So in that sense, they're untaught. Now, does, does God command us to be taught by others? Does God expect that we should be taught by others? Yes, where? Where, where might you make a case that all Christians should be taught by other, other Christians? The Great Commission, right? Go therefore and make disciples or disciple all nations. What's the last part? Teaching them to what? Obey everything I commanded, teaching them to observe everything I commanded. So Christians, by definition, should be taught by other Christians. But these who twist it, they want to unlatch from other Christians. And so by definition, they're untaught. And if they're untaught and they're only within their own views and their own impressions, then what are they? They're not only untaught, but they're what? Unstable. They're unstable. And, though, and if you're untaught and you're self-taught and you're not listening to others and then you're unstable, you're, the, the, the propensity and possibility of, of twisting scripture multiplies, right? And so um, Peter's telling us here, be on guard because you know this is gonna happen. There will always be people who are untaught and unstable who twist the scriptures in your churches and around your churches and talking to people in your churches. So be on guard, guard yourselves. That's the first reason to guard yourselves because you know people will twist it. And the second reason to guard yourselves is in verse 17. Look at verse 17. Again, guard yourselves or be on your guard. Why? So that, here's the purpose and the purpose of the whole, the whole passage, so that you are not led away by the air of lawless people in, and fall away from your own stable position. So the purpose why you're to guard yourself is so that you don't fall away from your own stable position. And the way you'd fall away from your own stable position, according to Peter, is by being, a led, by being led away by the error of lawless people, okay? So Peter's saying, don't fall away. I mean, what's, when you look around, just even here, look around at the church members. I mean, if you love each other, maybe your ultimate desire for each other is that they don't fall away, Right? I mean, I have a lot of desires for you, and I hope you have a lot of desires for me. You guys, we pray for each other. We have desires for each other. But our greatest desire for each other should be that we don't fall away, that we're saved all the way to the end, right? And if that's, that, if that's, if that's our desire for each other, then we need to guard ourselves so that we don't lose that stable position. That's Peter's desire for you and for his hearers, that they don't lose that stable position. And he says you'll lose that position if you're led away by the error of lawless people. You will stray by these people. So be careful not to be led away by them. In other words, you need to know true teaching so that you can know false teaching. You should know what false Christianity looks like. You should know what false teaching sounds like. You should know your own temptations and your weaknesses. Because guess what, brother? Guess what, sister? Your temptations and weaknesses are not the same as your fellow members. We have different ones. You need to know your own temptations. You need to know your own weaknesses. You need to share that with other people so that you can get help. Another way to make sure you don't fall away um, and be led away by errors, keep gospelizing other people. You know why? When you gospelize other people, what are you telling them? What are you speaking to them? The what? The gospel. That keeps you centered on the? The gospel. And when you're, you're fighting for the faith and repentance of fellow Christians or non-Christians, you're fighting for the gospel. And that will keep you from falling away from the gospel. If you don't share the gospel with other people, you're more likely to fall away from the gospel. Because you don't feel the truth of it and you don't feel the burden for other people needing to believe it. 
That helps you keep in the, stay in the gospel by you gospelizing other people. So engage fellow Christians with gospel intentionality. Engage non-Christians with gospel intentionality so that you don't fall away from your stable position. So be on your guard. In Ezekiel 3, 17 to 21, God talks about the watchmen being on their guard. I've been watching World War II um, documentaries the, uh, with my wife and with our kids sometimes. And um, I just passed the, the one on, the bat, um, on Pearl Harbor, which was episode three. And so on December, is it December 7th? December 7 or 8? 7. December 7, 1941, at 7.02 a.m., so at 7.02 a.m., radar was new back then. On the radar, there were two privates up on the northern part of the island of Oahu, and so they were just doing a trial run. Hey, go test the radar. So they're testing the radar at 7.02 a.m., and um, they see a blob of airplanes coming. And so they sound to, to the rest of them and say, hey, there's a blob of airplanes on our radar. And they're like, oh, that's nothing. It's, you know, they're running tests on the radar. It's, it's not a big deal. That's 7.02 a.m. By 7.53 a.m., 183 planes are over, the enemy planes are over the island and over the base, right? and there's just sitting ducks ready to be bombed and destroyed because they were not on guard. And there's actually, I mean, I can name three or four other things that they should have known that would tip them off. Hindsight's 20-20, right? But, but they should have known, they should have checked, they should have been on guard. And a lot of times you Christians, us Christians, are not on guard. We're just too relaxed. Something pops up on our radar, oh man, there's a sin in my life. Yeah, it's not a big deal, just leave it there. Oh man, there's a sin in our church, it's over here, it's popping up on the radar, oh, it's not a big deal. And then the enemy has his way in your life. He has his way in our church. Because there are things on the radar that you ought to be paying attention to and guarding yourselves against. So let's keep praying for each, each member and let's keep membership meaningful in sharing life and um, confessing sins and fighting sin together. Children, learn to study well in your school. Do good in your school. Why? So you can learn your Bible well. You don't become good at knowing your Bible just by studying your Bible. You, go, you, you learn your Bible well by learning about a lot of other things. So as you're in school, as you learn things in your classes, work hard in school, not for your grades only or even primarily. Work hard on your grades. Work hard on learning so that you can learn the Bible and learn Jesus. All right, so maintain your stable position so that you confirm your calling and election. Three ways so far, right? By going hard after holiness. Number two, by giving thanks for God's patience, which is salvation. Number three, by guarding yourselves from error. And lastly, by growing in grace. Now, if you want to win a game, by, so number four is by growing in grace. Verse 18, you guys see it there in verse 18? But what's the command here? But what? Grow in grace and in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So maintain your stable position by growing in the grace. Now, you can't win a basketball game. I know not all of you like basketball, but I'll just, just got to stick to my sport. Um, my sport is now watching basketball, not playing. So, um, <laughs> my sport of choice in watching, yeah. If you're, only, if you're only on defense, you can't win the game. You have to play offense to win. In the same way, if you're, or to put it another way, it's not just about guarding yourselves from error. It's about you growing in grace. If, if, or to put it another way, you can't be healthy and thrive merely by focusing on avoiding sicknesses and germs. You know anyone like that? Maybe not only like this, but what do you do? I'm not going to get sick, so what am I going to do? I'm going to wash my hands all the time. I'm going to wash my hands often. 
I'm not going to shake hands with anyone. If I shake hands with anyone, I'm going to go right to the bathroom after and wash my hands or find the hand sanitizer. Or I won't shake hands with people or I will not touch doorknobs. I'll make sure to use my elbow when I get to the elevator to press, to press the button. Um, when I'm going down the escalator, I'm going to make sure not to put my hands on the handrails. I won't touch other people's phones. And I will have my hand sanitizer close at hand so that I can always sanitize my hands. I might even wear those masks to make sure I don't breathe the air you're breathing out lest I get sick. If that's all you do to stay healthy, will you be a healthy person? If that's all you do, you're just always on guard. No, you need to eat, right? You need to eat well. You need to exercise and you need to get sleep. So eat well, exercise, and get sleep. In other words, to be healthy and thriving, you can't just be on defense. You can't just guard yourself from the germs. You got to eat well. You got to sleep well. You got to exercise your body. You have to do those things to be healthy. In the same way, you can't just say, what are all the errors? I'm going to be a master of all the cults. So you get all those books, and all you do is read about cults and false teaching all day. You spend all your day reading about false teachings. You're not going to grow. That's defense. You need some of that. But you need to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. So what does it mean to grow in the grace? What is God's grace? I like that it says the grace. Grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus. What, what is grace? Grace is God's favor and God's giving of himself. God's giving of his good self through Christ to those who deserve damnation. That's God's grace. To the ill-deserved, God doesn't give you what do you deserve, hell. He gives you himself through Christ. He gives you his goodness. He gives you his favor. That's grace. It's not, it's not earned. It's never earned. It's always given freely. It's a gift. So how can you be commanded to grow in something that's a gift? I mean, it's like saying, on your birthday, get $500 worth of gifts. Like, how do I do that, though? Like, if they're the ones who have to give it to me, like, okay, maybe I have to throw a party now and do a lot of other things to, to position myself to get it. But, but you can't just buy yourself a gift because that's not... That's not a gift anymore, right? So how do you grow in grace when God has to be the one to give it to you? Well, let's put that to the side for now. And let's, ask, let's, ask, let's look at the next part. Not only to grow in grace, but grow in what? Knowledge. Grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. So grow in knowing Jesus. How do you grow in knowing Jesus? How? Give me some ways. By what? Read your Bible. Good. What else? Pray. Pray review and speak the what? Gospel regularly. So review the gospel. Speak the gospel. Worship Jesus with your church. Focus on Jesus with your church. Be gospelized by other people in your church. Repent and run to Jesus for fresh grace every time you sin so that you know what it feels like to be forgiven and cleansed and to make progress in fighting sin in your life because you don't sit on your sin and wait and hide it. You confess it to God and others freely because you want to grow in Christ. So repent and run to Jesus for fresh applications of grace and forgiveness. And then lean on Jesus in trials through your prayer life. That's how you grow in, in the knowledge of Jesus, right? That's how you grow to know somebody. Spend time with the person. Talk to the person. Listen to the person. Learn from the person. Now, side note here, it says, the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So just a little bit of ammo if you're taking notes. If you ever talk to Jehovah's Witness, you want to know how to prove that Jesus is God, there's so many ways to do it. Let me just give you one from 2 Peter. In 2 Peter 3.18, it says, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Is Lord and Savior referring to the same person, Jesus Christ, or to different people? Same person. You have the same thing in 2.20 and 1.11. Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But in 2 Peter 1.1, it doesn't say our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. 
Second Peter 1, 1 says what? The righteousness of what? Our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's the same construction. So if Lord and Savior refers to the same person, when it says our God and Savior, it's calling Jesus what? God. Jesus is God. Okay, that's a side note. But if you're going to know Jesus, you have to know that Jesus is God and he's not merely a man, though he is man as well. So how do you grow in grace if it's given to you? Can you grow in grace just automatically by just doing an action and all of a sudden grace comes? Yes. Can you grow in grace directly by your own action? Yes or no? No, you can't. Can you grow in knowledge directly by your own action? Yes. So how do you grow in grace and knowledge? Well, how does grace relate to knowledge? Look at 2 Peter 1, verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you, and this next word is crucial, through the knowledge of God, of our God, of God and Jesus our Lord. May grace and peace be multiplied. So you're going to grow in grace. You're going to have grace multiplied to you. How? Through knowledge. So if you're going to grow in grace and knowledge, you, need, you, you will grow in grace through knowledge. So knowledge does not automatically grow you in grace. Just like if you, I, I was supposed to raise $500 worth of gifts on my birthday, I could give invitations, I could throw a party, I can do things, but I can't directly just get the gifts. In the same way, if you're going to grow in grace, you need to put yourself in positions to grow in grace through knowledge. So as you learn about Christ and you seek Christ, grace flows through Christ. Now let me give you some good news here just, just before we get to our conclusion here. Let me give you some good news. God's grace is sufficient for you, yes? Second, right now, wherever you are in your Christian life, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, God's grace is sufficient for you. Philippians 2, 13, God is working actively, actively in you even right now, okay? God's grace is sufficient for you. God's working in you. Third, God is able to make every grace abound to you, to overflow to you. It says that in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. So God will make every grace overflow to you. And then here, what is God commanding you to do? To grow in what? Grace. Grow in grace. All of this is grace. The fact that grace is sufficient for you, the fact that God is working in you, the fact that, that um, God is able to make every grace abound to you, that God is enthusiastically eager to pour out grace on you, and the fact that God commands you to grow in grace. Do you think God wants to be gracious to you? Do you think God wants to pour out grace in you? Do you think God wants you to grow in grace? Yes, all of that is grace. So what should we do? Grow in knowing God. Grow in trusting what you know of God. Grow in obeying God. When you know God, when you're learning about God here in your head, right? You're learning God, and then you're trusting God, and then you're obeying God, guess what's going to happen? You're going to enjoy God. And that joy is the core of grace. Because I could know something and just obey it because I have to out of just brute force and will. But when it goes from knowing to trusting and obeying, and then there's that joy inside of it, that I'm actually experiencing the joy and goodness of God, I'm tasting and seeing that God is good, that is the core of grace. And I need to grow in that. And so when God gives you his word, he's giving you an opportunity to give you himself as you learn God's word and trust and obey it. And then when you enjoy God in that moment, you move from that moment to the next episode and the next episode and the next episode and you're building a history of grace in your life which should be growing, so you should be growing in grace, a momentum of experiences of enjoying God in your life. That's what it means to grow in grace, season by season, episode by episode, in the joy of, of God's grace. And here's the point as we uh, go back to Second uh, Peter 
It says, but grow in grace and the knowledge. What's the but there for? Where it says, but, but grow in grace, it's contrasting with what? Instead of what? Grow in grace instead of what? Verse 17, anyone? Instead of what? Instead of falling away. Grow in grace instead of falling away. So here's, here's what I think Peter's point is, and I hope this hits us, or at least uh, that we grasp this. Grow today or go astray. Grow today or, grow, or go astray. You can't stay in the middle. You're either growing or you're going astray. You're either growing in the moment or you're going astray in the moment. There is no middle ground, brothers and sisters. That's a lie from Satan, that you can stay right in the middle and not grow or shrink. That doesn't happen. You either are falling away or drifting away or you're growing in Christ. So the, the thing here is grow today or go astray. You can't be in the middle. That's a lie from Satan. And that's why a lot of people, that's, why, that's how a lot of Christians go astray. It's not because they are trying to go astray. It's because they think they're not moving. I'm just staying in the middle. I'm not growing. I'm not not growing. I'm just there. Well, guess what? You're shrinking. You're going astray. And then you wake up five years later or five months later or five weeks later and you say, what happened to my spiritual life? Well, you've been going astray every, every moment, moment by moment, trial by trial, episode by episode. You've been going astray. You've been drifting. So you either grow in grace in experiencing joy in Christ or you drift. There is no middle ground. There is no other option. And so Peter wants you to make it to the end. And the only, you're, the only way you're gonna make it to the end is if you keep growing. You keep growing moment by moment, season by season. So church family, expect the members of this church to grow. As you gospelize them, as they read their Bible, as they gather together, expect members of this church to grow. So let me just repeat before we close. Maintain your stable position so that you confirm your calling and election. How do you do it? By going hard after holiness, by giving thanks for God's patience, by guarding yourselves, and by growing in grace. God loves to pour out grace. God doesn't delight in shrinking Christians. He loves, grow, he loves to grow Christians, and he wants to grow you too. So here's my call, brothers and sisters. Grow today or go astray. Prayerfully, here, maybe if you could do one thing, prayerfully identify and take one step to grow in grace through knowledge of Christ today. Are you going to read your Bible? Are you going to meditate on the sermon? Are you going to talk about it with others? Find one, identify one thing, one thing prayerfully and say, I want to grow in grace through this, Lord. Help me grow. If you don't grow today, you'll go astray. You'll misunderstand God and you might even finally fall away. But if you do identify one thing and you try to grow, you'll know Christ, you'll obey Christ, you'll trust Christ, and in that, you will taste some of the joy of Christ. You'll enjoy Christ and you'll experience the peace that God has for you. So to summarize the whole book, let's just go to the last phrase of the, of the book. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. To, to summarize, let me just take this last phrase, this last sentence, and show you how it summarizes the whole book. To summarize the book, the day of God is coming, right? The day of God is coming, and so you need to maintain your position by hearing God's word and growing in the grace so that, last part, so that all glory goes to who? Christ, Right? And not just in the end. Not just, oh, I'm saved, so I'm gonna glorify Christ in the end. It says, to him be glory both when? Both right now in your growing today, the episode today. Grow in Christ today. Enjoy Christ today. Enjoy Christ in this moment so that you glorify him now. And if you do it now, and then the next moment, and the next moment, you'll glorify him now. To him be glory both now and the next moments into the day of eternity. So may Christ be glorified as we grow 
and may he be glorified both now in our lives, but this week and to the day of eternity. Let's pray. I'll give you a moment to pray, just a few seconds here. Short prayer to the Lord. Father, we cannot grow apart from your grace, and yet it's grace that we seek to grow in. So reveal yourself to us. Help us to know your son. Help us to trust your son. Help us to obey your son. And in that, help us to enjoy your son. That we as a church body might explain Jesus together, that we might embody Jesus to one another and to the lost, and that we as a church family might also enjoy Christ and grow in grace. Help us, we pray, and may Christ get glory, both now, today, in the, in the episodes to come, and into the day of eternity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.